Hello and welcome to Next on WQL and I'm your host Marcus Atkinson. If you get an opportunity to like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at 814NEXT, please do that, lend your voice to the dialogue. Today we have a couple of special guests from the community that have been doing extensive work in their own rights to advance the agendas of cohesiveness in community, uh, equality, and just overall awareness. Our first guest in studio is Mr. Chuck Camerata, local pastor. Chuck, welcome to the show. To be here. We also have Mr. Abdullah Washington, poet, producer, and community activist. Abdullah, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. And via Zoom, we have Mr. Adrian Ewing, who's an entrepreneur and a community advocate as well. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Marcus. There are several topics that we want to touch on today. Today, if you will, will be more of a roundtable discussion so that we can get their thoughts and just have open discussion on these various topics that they deem important, that we deem important as a community. But I want to touch on something before we get started. I know that one of Abdullah's points is police reform. And there's something that has been very frustrating to watch play out in the media. I've been watching videos by a young lady by the name of Candace Owens. And Candace Owens has been undressing every situation that's been playing out in the news when it comes to these African-American males being shot in the media, African-Americans being shot in the media. One of the things that she said about the George Floyd situation was that uh, George Floyd should not have been killed in the manner that he was, but he was no hero by any stretch of the imagination because of his background, because of his history and things along those lines. It's very frustrating as an African-American male and, and as a person who is the father of two sons of color to see African-American men or people have their backgrounds picked apart when they are victims of violent crimes at the hands of law enforcement. I want to bring a couple of points to bear before we go into this conversation. November 22nd, 2014, the case that broke my heart the most, arguably, is the case with young Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy, playing with a gun in a park in Cleveland. And so if you have boys, if you teach boys, if you are neighbors with boys, you know that boys play with guns often. Black boys, white boys, Hispanic boys, that's just the nature of young boys. And to have this young man killed by a 26-year-old white officer, Timothy Lehman, when you follow the specifics of that case, according to a Cleveland newspaper, in the aftermath of the shooting, it was revealed that Mr. Lehman, in his previous job as a police officer in the Cleveland suburb of Independence, had been deemed emotionally unstable and unfit for duty. Open-ended question, obviously, is how is that not discovered as he's applying to serve and protect at the tune of taxpayer dollars, but I digress. He didn't disclose this fact on his application. That was problematic. And then following that investigation, he was fired for withholding information, information on his application. Tamir Rice's family won a $6 million lawsuit, but here's one of the things I want to point out. A review by retired FBI agent Kimberly Crawford found that Rice's death was justified and that Lehman's response was a quote-unquote reasonable one, problematic. Even as we look at what happened with Jacob, Jacob Blake on August 23rd of this year, shot seven times in the back by an officer. And the same situation happened. His background is being picked apart. What type of person was he? We saw this happen to Michael Brown. We saw this happen to so many individuals in the past. Yet you see footage of 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse 
erasing graffiti. You hear people trying to justify that he wanted to protect storefronts and attempt to humanize. But again, I, I digress. I go back to an, a historic example, per Ms. Parker's argument, a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin. What many people don't realize is that in 1955, nine months before Rosa Parks refused to give her seat up, a 15-year-old African-American woman, young girl, refused to give her seat up as well. Now, why didn't they set it off when she refused to give her seat up? Because she was impregnated by a married man. And this was the logic of the civil rights movement at that time. If we set it off based upon this young woman's situation, it would be debunked by the media because, as Candace Parker said, she's no hero. This is not the person that we want to base this movement upon. And so Rosa Parks was put forth an honored, respected married woman, was in charge of the NAACP Youth Council for 12 years. And do you think that made any difference to the public? You think it made any difference in terms of how the police or law enforcement treated civil rights movements, the, the marchers, the, the protesters of the civil rights movement? There are documented photos and accounts of these same people that protested because of this honorable woman giving her seat up, being beaten, dogs sicked on her, and hosed. And so with that, I'll go into our guest. But I had to begin with that because the, the whole idea of let us demonize victims of systemic racism is unto itself one of the most sadistic forms of racism. As if you have to justify yourself when you are shot in the back seven times, when you are arrested for not giving up your seat or when your 12-year-old son is gunned down in a park for playing with a toy. With that being said, we go over to um, our guest, Abdullah Washington. Abdullah, we know that police reform was something that you pointed out um, you wanted to discuss today. Lead us into that discussion from your vantage point. Well, I mean, I've been looking at this thing for a while, and particularly when it comes to the subject of Erie and this issue, um, you know, if you're going to look at law and law enforcement, as an artist, I want to look at the contour. And the contour to the issue is crime. And if we're going to start anywhere, we'll start with uh, the idea of the mafia, who refers to itself as La Cosa Nostra. And for anyone who knows what that means, Mar Marcus, what is that? Do you, do, you understand, do you know what that translates into? No, help us out, brother. It, it, it translates into the this family. thing of ours. This thing of ours. And <clears throat> so we have to ask ourselves, who are we and what is it that's ours? I was at a demonstration uh, recently in Edinburgh um, regarding just uh, inclusion-based uh, ideas and people uh, minorities being afraid uh, down there and dealing with, particularly students, uh, dealing with the community there and raising the issues uh, of inclusion uh, around these issues. I mean, you can say Black Lives Matter or whatever, but these are, before the phrase came out, these have been ongoing issues. And so the students took the initiative upon themselves to, to demonstrate uh, their desire for inclusion uh, down there. And one of the things I thought was, was incredible was just that, uh, the presence of armed people to somehow rein in 
these demonstrators, they had all these visions in their minds of, of some violent activity that no one planned, uh, and they were armed. And come to find out several of the people who were there were part of a notorious, one of the worst biker gangs in the entire country. So the idea that they could perceive themselves as somehow upholding some kind of law and order when it came to minority issues in America, it speaks to the idea of this perception, not only that black people equal crime, which is just, you know, you see it pointed to uh, so many times in so many different ways, but that somehow people who sell drugs to children and traffic in guns and narcotics and all, any kind of crime you want to think any kind of gang would do, simply by virtue of them being Caucasians, that somehow they're patriotic. <clears throat> How did we get here? So this idea of what's our, who's ours, who's us, and what's ours, and who doesn't belong, is floating behind the scenes. And the very direct idea that, that crime equals black people is, is just, we've gotten to a terrible place as a nation. And, as, and, and you see that here in Erie County playing itself out from the most unexpected sources. Mm. So Abdul, let's, let's follow that for a minute or two because you brought up an interesting point. Counter, armed counter protesters. It feels like we're sitting on a powder keg that at any moment is going to go off. I, I, I look at the situation with Kyle Rittenhouse that I brought up earlier. Right. I think that that is going to go down as the thing that kind of threw down the gauntlet with these protests. I look back at Charlottesville and, and the, the heinous act, you know, by the guy there running over protests, killing one. Sure. You know, Chuck and, and Adrian chime in a little bit. What, what are your thoughts when you see the standoffs, if you will, that are starting to formulate at these protests? Well, I'll start off by saying that uh, when you, once, we, once we graduated to the point where we have armed uh, protesters, or armed counter-protesters, if you will, uh, showing up at these these rallies, uh, Marcus, we end up in a scenario where we, like you said, we are creating a powder keg. Uh, and that's what we're sitting on right now as a, as a country. And we have to realize that we need to de-escalate this entire thing uh, across the board. Uh, because one side, it's just like Charlottesville, one side is is protesting systemic inequality, systemic racism, and the other side is I'm not sure, I'm kind of lost. I don't know if they're defending that or what, but to come to that type of thing, like what happened in Edinburgh, uh, Isaiah said about it, what happened in Edinburgh uh, was a very peaceful daytime demonstration. I have a lot of friends and folks there that were there. I wasn't there, but that was a very peaceful uh, gathering. And to, and to come at that, uh, to respond to that with armed uh, response, and it wasn't just the armed response; it was the rhetoric that was being used at the protesters. Now we have to keep, we have to, we have to put the carrying arms over here because we can get into a Second Amendment argument about that. We are allowed to carry an arm in Pennsylvania, and many states around our country. Um, it was the rhetoric that was used. It was, it was insightful rhetoric. It was rhetoric that was designed. It was words and taunts that were designed to get those people uh, to, to, in a sense, come out of character. And when they did that, it, it was kind of just like the, the Kyle Rittenhouse situation to say, see, that person had that coming. And I, I, I think we're, we're just in a really difficult situation. Chuck, time in. Chuck. Well, one of my issues is just the need for us to come together. And uh, there's so much going on in our world right now. There's so many issues that I don't think we can become the people that 
we ought to, to be uh, unless we come together. So for me, the question becomes, how do we do that? How do we come together? And um, I think about the things that divide us as a way of sort of getting a handle on that. And um, one of the things that divides us is um, just one of the many things that divide us uh, has to do with the way we look at the world and, and uh, the way we understand ourselves, uh, our sense of identity. And um, if, we're, if we're defining ourselves, this is why Make America Great Again is such a powerful tool. If we're identifying ourselves based on, uh, on, a, on a narrative, a story, an understanding of America that, is, um, that grows out of uh, the myth uh, of, of the American dream and of America, American elitism and America as the, the great leader of the world, if we define ourselves that way, we leave out uh, whole segments of the population and we can't come together then. Right. But, but, but we're so frightened of one another, we so need to stay safe that, um, and comfortable that we'll do anything to do that. We'll, we'll take up arms, we'll dress in our military fatigues, we'll go uh, and uh, pretend um, that right. we are being patriotic when in fact what we're doing is just protecting our own little turf. Mm -hmm. So, so for, for me the questions become how do we get past that? Um, how do we connect with people? And, and I become, I struggle with whether or not um, we're capable of doing that, uh, but I'm also committed to the task. I look at one aspect of this, uh, the aftermath of the death of uh, uh, Chief Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm -hmm. and wonderful woman has a, a a career, a stellar career in not just the law, but in activism and advancing the whole idea and the notion of, of women's rights. But I look at what's happening in the aftermath and the whole confirmation thing and the difference between 2016 and now and how Scalia's vacancy was handed, handled versus now and the debate in the media is, you know, let's be consistent. There's an inconsistency. And so when you go back to this police reform it's the inconsistency, and I wonder if the powers that be understand just how much you add fuel to the fire when you are wildly inconsistent, when someone can gun down a church full of people they just prayed with, and you can go feed them after the fact, and then they look a certain way. Right. How do you justify that when you then shoot a man seven times in the back, you know, and un unarmed at that time? And when you look at the, the Kyle Rittenhouse situation, the list goes on, and you talk about Second Amendment, Adrian, that's been raged, and so the... You have protesters on the steps of nation's capitals with arms and guns and everything else protesting wearing a mask. Right, that's right. And yet those same images was the reason why you demonized the Black Panther movement, right. the reason why they were public enemy number one. And the list goes right. on and on and on. And so the more duplicitous you are, yes. the more this thing escalates. And so I'll go to the president before I throw it back out there, because the president, in theory, any president, any president, for anyone who says you're picking on Donald Trump, he, the sitting president, whoever that person is, is the president of everyone. Right. And you look at a situation like Charlottesville, there's good and evil on both sides. Is that the response that we need when we're trying to bring people together? Right. Chuck, you look at the, the response with Kyle Rittenhouse. Looks like he was trying to defend himself. Is that the response that we need when we're trying to bring people together? Any of you talk about just that simple notion, because Chuck has a point. We have to figure out ways to come together but by the same token, it's society. Are the decision makers making things worse 
by just adding one bad decision after the next that accentuates the fact that there are, in fact, two Americas. Sure. Uh, I mean, if you Marcus, think... let me chime. Marcus, let me chime in real sure, quick. Sure, sure. Marcus, let me chime in real quick on that Second Amendment point that I made. Um, I didn't make that point uh, to say I I'm definitely not for bringing a gun to a counter protest. Absolutely, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm uh, saying is we, we the, the 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 opposition to progress in our country, and I don't mean that as a a right or left thing. I think there are people who are opposition to progress uh, on all sides of of the aisle. But the people who are in opposed to progress that this nation needs right now, what they try to do is they try to muddy the waters. And so they take three or four different things at one time. So they'll bring a gun to a rally. Uh, they'll, they'll use insightful language. That's freedom of speech. So now you've got the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. You know, if you stop them and you search them to see what they have, now you're into the Fourth Amendment. These are folks that are are very tactful in what they're doing. And the response to them has to be equally tactful. Mm. But to be careful not to go down this uh, rabbit hole of, you know, moving too many different things, because that's how they that's how they out, that's how they ally themselves uh, with different groups, uh, whether that be the NRA or, or whatnot. They ally themselves. They'll carry a gun. They'll carry the flag. So now you've got Second Amendment patriotism. Mm -hmm. And you know what I mean? And they're holding a Bible under their arm. And now you've got right. the evangelical movement and, and that's what i meant by that absolutely uh, i know i in no way uh, condone that but thank you for that distinction and i didn't take it that way but i'm glad you cleared that up before i throw it to the other panelists on that you bring up the nra that's something that people have been speaking on as well listen philando castillo was a licensed right. gun owner right. on this show we pulled his license and showed it on right. this show behind us on the screen before, several months ago. He was a licensed gun owner. Right. The boyfriend of Breonna Taylor, a licensed gun owner. So where's the NRA exactly. when it comes to situations right. like this? Abdullah, come, come back in on this conversation. So as you're watching these things play out, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I mean, just from activism, I've been, we've been looking at this stuff for a long time. And I, I would just cautiously say, just as a black person, I mean, we live in this, we live in this society and we get to experience it in, in a way where we're always the object of discussion as opposed to a subject. And uh, the fear mongering and everything else, and we have to figure out ways to navigate the reality uh, of, this, of this existence. And so I think everyone can agree uh, one of the issues on, if you will say, the other side of those who believe in civil liberties is this idea of over-criminalization. Uh, 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 too many laws, you will constantly hear them say, over-regulation. But that's the environment that African Americans live in every day in America. Right. And so if you think that's so, if you don't like it, can you imagine being us, mm -hmm. having to constantly deal with it? And you would that's think right. those very people right would have empathy for us in our situation. But again, their principle is that they are doing something that is certainly extra legal, you know, uh, uh, and they're entitled to it because they, are, they have their own us. And they believe extra legally that this country and city to city across it is theirs in some kind of way. And that perpetuates this narrative that even though uh, when Marcus and I get in our cars and drive around wherever we need to go, that somehow we are in violation of a law simply by being present in a place where they, don't, they may not anticipate us for one reason or another. It is the perception. Isaiah, Isaiah the, 
the regulation, the over-regulations you're talking about, they're designed for us, not for them. That, well, precisely. So if you want to be, we're talking about consistency, right? right? I mean, but, uh, right. you know, so that's right. very deliberate. And I think one of the issues with, that, that got the current president in office today is the clear and direct abandoning of Lee Otwater's Southern strategy. You know, and it just seems so clever, but it's like, if you don't know about the Southern strategy, of uh, the idea of abstracting from these, these, these racist, like openly racist ideas, not even vague at all, like having a sign that said, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, whites only signs up and abstracting from that. You know, that was a strategy for a long time uh, because those very blatant forms of racism became unpopular during the late 50s and, early, and in the 60s. Let me, let me get Chuck back into this conversation because Chuck, as a pastor, um, as one of our white pastors, obviously, if you haven't noticed, our brother is white. <laughs> as a pastor, Chuck, you've, you've gone after this very notion, even when you have been in homogenous rooms, even when people don't necessarily want to hear it. You know, talk about that experience a little bit. Well, we live in a world today that, that you, if we're going to, to go forward in this world, if we're going to build a world that we want our children and grandchildren to be able to live in and thrive in, we have to come together. And that means that people like me who lived in my comfortable little bubble out in Fairview, uh, very white, very middle class bubble for 30 some years, we have to become uh, aware of. We have, to, we have to learn about things that we've not learned before. We have to understand the experience of people like Abdullah and you, Marcus, mm. um, and and uh, how different your lives have been. There's a, there's a guy named uh, Mark Charles who I, who I came to know a couple of years ago, uh, Native American. He writes about uh, indigenous people's experience in America. And, and one of the things that he said, what drew me to him initially before I heard him speak and met him, was that he talked about how there is this American mythology the, the mythology that if, if you work hard and you follow the rules, uh, uh, you can get ahead, and you can live a better life, and America is the place where that happens. Uh, he said, though, that's not the story of anybody but white America. Mm. And mm. so for Marcus, um, for Abdullah, for Mark Charles uh, as uh, a Native American, there's an entirely different story that uh, they tell about America, that they have lived about America. And the people that I've ministered to all my life don't know that story. Um, whether we've averted our eyes and ignored it or whether we're just um, ignorant of it because uh, it's not been part of our experience in any way, we don't know that story. And <clears throat> in fact, we've been told another story about you. We've been told that Native Americans are savages. Um, we grew up watching those television programs where the cavalry came to the rescue. Uh, we have been told from the beginning that, mm -hmm. that black people, black men, are uh, ignorant and uh, that they uh, are violent and uh, that they're all involved in crime. Uh, it's the same kind of thing that happened to the people who were my ancestors when they came to this country. Every Italian is in the mafia. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so it's, it's sort of the human thing that we do, um, defining ourselves over against other people, trying to, to, to create a mythology that makes us uh, the elite, um, makes us right, um, gives us permission to treat other people badly. 
But for us today, and this is one of the one of the reasons why so many books have come out recently about white privilege and, and white fragility and white rage, we're just becoming aware. I have really good friends um, who, who aren't tuned in and who have a hard time understanding uh, the experience of the other. So what are we going to do to try to help with that? And one of the problems that I see is that we're in so many crises right now. <clears throat> It feels like the time is short, but this is a long-term project, helping us to connect with one another, know one another, and in terms of, you know, as a pastor, in terms of the Christian faith, not just helping us to know one another, but helping us to love one another, which is the fundamental call mm -hmm. of, our, uh, of our faith and of our leader, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I, I, don't, I don't get all of the division from the side, from, from Christians who want to put people into categories of who's acceptable and who's not, because that's not a biblical way of doing things. I want to wrap up this, this segment on, well, actually going to this, the final part of this conversation about police reform. And Chuck, you brought up an excellent point. When you look at the historical context and what America has reinforced about certain groups of people. You know, I spoke to a police officer who uh, very innocently says, I don't know how necessary it is for me to understand the history of everything else in order to do my job well. And I said, I, I pushed back on that a little bit. I said, when you look at the, the images from the civil rights era, who's the celebrity in each one of those images? What's the common denominator? Even though you had racist politicians enacting laws and policies, who was stuck carrying those policies out? You look at the beginnings mm -hmm. of law enforcement and slave catching and things along those lines. The boogeyman that, that the police officers originally were, were uh, mandated to keep in check looked like me. And so who do you think applied for those jobs at the inception of the police department if one of their primary functions was to keep black people in their place in society? People who were very interested, invested in keeping black people in their place mm -hmm. in society. You've been the poster boy, I'm telling this police officer, for racism, mm -hmm. love it or hate it. That needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. I'll go back to the Breonna Taylor case real quick, and there was a settlement for $12 million, according to an article by Nicole Chavez for CNN.com. And there's a statement by the Louisville mayor, Greg Fisher. He began his news conference by saying that um, Breonna Taylor's death 186 days ago, roughly, ignited a movement in Louisville and the nation for racial justice. Speaking directly to Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer, Fisher said, I cannot begin to imagine Ms. Palmer's pain, and I'm deeply, deeply sorry for Brianna's death. And so here's the point that I'm getting to. One of the things that he said, and this was the largest monetary settlement in the history of that city, he said that the city will implement a series of police department reforms to quote unquote prevent a tragedy like this from ever happening again. Adrian, I'm gonna throw this to you in a second. Among the reforms will be building stronger connections, which we hear ad nauseum, mm -hmm. between police and the communities they serve. Talk a little bit about what you're passionate about. The police review review board, I want to say it is, and I know that's one tool Absolutely. of many, and then we'll toss it back over to Abdullah. Talk about that a little bit. Well, there's a couple points, and I, I wrote them down before, before I even wanted to broach the subject with you. One of them is a, what's called a, a citizen's review board. Okay. Now, we've heard a lot of talk, a lot of talk for many years about what we're going to do to have some semblance of accountability for our local police department. The, what you do for to have that is you have regular citizens who are not police officers uh, involved in reviewing the day-to-day -day practices of your police department. 
Second, I had accountability down. Um, you have to have a, 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 a rigorous system of accountability across the board. And then in addition to that, you need to have federal standards that are tied directly to funding of police departments. You're hearing some of this talk uh, from Kamala Harris, uh, who's the, the vice president on the Democratic ticket, is the only person I've, I've heard really touch on this. Uh, that might be because of her uh, long history as a prosecutor out in California, so she understands how this works. The federal government funds a, a significant portion of local law enforcement. And so if you have federal standards, now you have top-down standards of accountability uh, for local police departments, and you tie the federal funding, and maybe even state funding, directly to uh, that system of accountability. And then last, Marcus, I have uh, police in schools. Okay, if your kid goes to a public school in Erie, there are police officers in that school. That's just a reality. That's how it was when I was a kid growing up and went to a East High School. There were cops in my school. That's a normal thing. Uh, and unfortunately, it's a normal thing. But if we're, if we're going to have police in our schools, then we also need to have programming around law enforcement and policing in our schools. Um, so the function of those police officers has to be greater than the current function. The current function is to, you know, tamp down violence, uh, search kids, that kind of thing. It's, 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 a, it's a policing function rather than an educational function. Everything in our schools needs to be uh, 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 gauged from an educational uh, standpoint, and that includes the police that are in our schools. So building those better relationships between our police department and our community, it starts in our schools, it starts in our communities. It doesn't start when Breonna Taylor is killed. It doesn't start when George Floyd has a knee on his neck. Mm -hmm. At that point, we are already too late. We are already just, we're, we're being reactionary at that point, and that's why you see that's why you see protesters in the streets, and that's why, quite frankly, you see rioting and stuff burning down. Mm. We need to address these issues now while we have the opportunity in our world, while the, world, the eyes of the entire country are on this issue, we have a responsibility to address that. Sorry for that being long. No, excellent, excellent. Abdullah, chime in on that. When you think about police reform, what are the things that come to mind for you, and where are the areas that you feel we need to lean in? Well, I mean, specifically for Erie, um, I've seen this quote floating around from Frederick Douglass. It says it's, it's easier to build uh, up a strong children. Than broken men. Right, than to repair broken men, right? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, right. So that, that statement with that is often misused because where it comes from is his comments when he was a slave about the white people he saw around him. Now, I mean, he's, he basically describes himself trying to inoculate these young white men who were his master's children against racism and against the institution of slavery. And he could observe as he was growing how their personalities changed and how they interacted with him, uh, how, how the mistress of the house treated him from time to time. And he observed when their spirits were broken with respect to their views of dehumanizing African-Americans as he grew. So it's just, um, it's important to realize that people who think they're benefiting from a system are actually destroying themselves spiritually by this activity. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to look at us and say, well, we don't have. Clearly in Erie, there's a problem holistically with disinvestment in the African-American community, which is the biggest right. problem that affects everything with us. And to, to that end, 
Yeah, uh, the Civilian Review Board, the Police Civilian Review Board is absolutely necessary to establish a relationship. One of the ways, if you see an error, uh, and it comes from, you know, from the, the, uh, the structure, or the, it's part of the structure of how things just re regularly go, you can plan on it. You have to put your institutional weight behind correcting that. Mm -hmm. It's not something that just can just take care of itself, because you can only expect it to keep replicating itself. And that's where we are with the issue of policing. That's where we are with the, the issue of uh, educators of color and performance in the school system. Every institution in this city and in this county perpetuates this disinvestment, which ends up in these negative results. Mm -hmm. Every single institution. There were already federal standards that many of our great institutions you see in the paper and on the news every day violate constantly. And one of the issues is that who's employing the attorneys? You know, because once the attorneys get a certain amount of income from a particular institution, then they don't necessarily, they're not too inclined to, 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 to take any actions when those institutions have violated some federal or state, you know, statute or law or, or whatnot. Excellent and so um, part of the job of community policing is to employ, <laughs> you know, people from different communities Absolutely. so that there's some kind of relationship that's there and that there's some level of respect. Uh, because oftentimes what you're seeing is police officers who have no relation to the communities that they police and can only rely on stereotypes when they go to apply the law. So uh, excellent points, excellent point. And it goes back to the, the origins. Whatever you're presenting, it will attract people that fit a certain profile. A lot of police are probably looking, looking at this and listening to this and pushing back in their minds. But Abdullah makes some very compelling points. There's an obvious disconnect. And so when you think about that, you think about, I go back to Chuck's statement, and I'll throw this back to Chuck. I think about Chuck's statement about coming together. I know that was very important. So let's segue from that to the whole notion of diversity, equity, inclusion. Equity and inclusion, especially. What does that mean? Because at this point, you know, that whole idea is nebulous to a lot of people. And, you know, how do you actually take steps towards that? Chuck, when you think about people coming together, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, it's so, it's so complicated these days. Um, so uh, I think that we're operating on two, two rails, or we need to be operating on two rails. Uh, and much of what I hear being talked about um, here uh, has to do with the, the operation on the institutional and the systemic level, and, that, and that's critical. Um, we are clearly a nation that has systematized white supremacy and uh, therefore institutionalized racism. But, but so many of us, you know, so here I am, the token white here today, and uh, um, so many of us who are, who are white and grew up middle class, lived in our bubbles, so many of us don't see the system that way. So many of us think of racism as simply being, being mean to other people, people of color, and, and uh, we're not that person. So we're nice people, so we're not racist. And, and there's this level of, um, uh, there's a truth to that, that in our niceness, we're not being racist. Uh, but what we don't understand is that we live in a system that works very hard and very intentionally against people of color. And not just people of color, but it works very hard against immigrants of all kind, and it works very hard against gays and lesbians. It, it works very hard against everyone who's not us, mm -hmm. against the other. And uh, as, we, 
as we step into this time with racial tensions and uh, seeing things that we've never seen before, people being killed by a cop with a smirk on his face as he kneels on his neck, uh, a man being shot in the back seven times. Uh, we're like, where did this come from? And um, my black friends would say, what do you mean? Where does this come from? This is the way it's been for us for 400 years. So we're having our eyes opened in dramatic ways, and it's, it's, it's hard for us um, to see the truth of who we have been as a nation. And um, that's one of the most important steps. So I'm involved in a group that's discussing race these days. And the, the first question, one of the first questions that we asked ourselves was, who should be included in this group? Uh, and a very wise uh, friend from Towns uh, suggested to us that we have to be a diverse group. We have to have other people involved in this, people of color. Um, but the, the pushback against that was, maybe we need to look in the mirror ourselves first uh, and take that step later um, of becoming inclusive. Because it's easier to own your own crap, your own mm -hmm. sin, um, when you're with other folks who have committed the same kinds of sin. And, uh, and, and it's a hard journey for those folks. And I don't want to minimize, um, I don't want to say our journey is, is harder than um, being the victims of all of this. That's certainly not the case. But I think there are many of us who are legitimately trying to get there and, and we're, we're having conversations about this. And it seems like a small thing. I have a, I have a friend who's a black man who said, uh, uh, yeah, we've seen it all before. Um, and uh, nice, nice uh, white people um, talking about uh, these issues. But we need to see more than that. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that in this time, in this place, in this environment, that our conversations will lead to more. And, uh, so we're trying to bring people together to have conversations mm -hmm. with the goal in mind of moving from those conversations amongst ourselves, owning our own stuff, uh, repenting, uh, confessing, and then moving to, um, to, to being active. But that doesn't mean, uh, and I think this is important to say here, doesn't mean that this is a process that's gonna, that precludes us from taking action now. Mm -hmm. So on a systemic level, we need to be advocating for reforms in our police, uh, in the way we police people in this country, let me, let, and those kinds of things. Let me ask a follow-up question to that. And Adrian, I'll start with you, and then we'll bring it back over to Abdullah and bring it right back to you, Chuck. In your opinion, what has been the role of the faith-based community, nationally, locally, whichever, when it comes to this issue? Because where division is concerned, where bringing people together is concerned, where harmony and unity are concerned. I think that oftentimes, rightfully so, we look to the faith-based community. How's that played out in your opinion in the wake of I all of this turmoil? One, there's this a two-part question. There were, so we're gonna talk about prior to what's happening now and what's happening now. Prior to what's happening now, I would say silence. And, and what, I, what do I mean by that? I don't mean that no work has been done. What I mean is that the work that has been done has been piecemeal. Uh, you know, I grew up with a father in the clergy. My father was assistant pastor of our church, Hopewell Baptist, here in Erie, a missionary Baptist church. And my father used to teach us when we were kids and talk to us about, he used to tell us that the most segregated place uh, in, in the United States of America is church on Sunday morning. Right. And my father grew up in the segregated South. 
And so um, even today, you see church services that are predominantly black. I mean, 100% black. I mean, it might be one, one white person there and, and, and on the other side, the exact same thing. So there was silence before this. But I wanted to touch on what's happening after this and, and just say to Chuck, Chuck, your commentary is, is refreshing. The way that you touched on the definition of racism, the way that you touched on folks feeling that racism is, you know, if I'm, if I'm, a, if I'm a horrible person or I drive down the road and I yell out the window the N-word at a bunch of black kids on a street corner, you know, that type of concept. I've been talking privately with friends of mine uh, white friends of mine about that, about the definition of what racism is. Racism is a lot of it is complicity. Mm-hmm. It's complicity with a system that mm-hmm. is designed to to hold people down. And so your ability as a member of the clergy and as a leader in your faith and and of 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 man in this world that we're living in and navigating through, to be able to pinpoint and put your finger on that is is refreshing at a level. I just have to thank you with all my heart for that. Leading forward, Marcus, what the clergy can do now is have the conversations, no doubt, but also have action. I mean, we have hundreds of churches in Erie. They own facilities, they own classrooms in their their churches. There's so many, there's, there's such a huge amount of resources that churches have to bring to bear on the issue of race in our mm. country and on the issue of things like mm. systemic racism. Yeah. Race and racism, obviously, <gasps> are two completely different things. They're, they're tied together, but they're different things. Absolutely. We have to understand who we are. But we also have to understand how we use who we are uh, to subjugate other groups of people. Mm-hmm. Abdullah, let's throw this over to you because I know that your mother is a member of the clergy, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Right. Yeah, I have a, my family is, 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 we have a long history of being involved in the clergy and, and, and serving in the military and, and just service in general. And I will tell you this, I mean, as an African-American, when you deal with different institutions and you go to corporate meetings and things like that, one of the first things you do when you get there is you assess how many people of color, however, you know, regardless of what what background you have are in that room or in that meeting or at attendance of that conference. And so I would just challenge everybody, including the clergy, to do that to themselves, especially white people. If you're going somewhere and there's nobody else there, or certainly it's all just white people, why aren't you questioning yourself and saying, if this thing is so good, if this business is so effective, you know, why does this room look like this? And just ask yourself that every time. If, you, if you're looking at sports as a metaphor, Jesse Jackson used to say uh, the reason why black people are well represented in sports is that the, 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 the playing field is level and the rules are clear to everyone, right? So if you believe that you are presenting something that is purely spiritual and transformative, then why is it just your particular, <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying, your folks in there? It, it's probably not that powerful in some kind of way if it's not, it's not as pure as you think it is, certainly. And then that should cause you to question yourself. Um, and I think the tradition of clergy members, people who are dedicated to possibly the, the purest spiritual aspect of re- whatever religious system you believe in, it's certainly incumbent upon, and I, I, I think you're doing great by having these meetings, but it's certainly incumbent upon you, or should be, 
uh, to be as inclusive as possible, or you have to question your own message. Mm -hmm. So the clergy needs to stop just meeting with themselves or their deacons or you know, the people who are most dedicated to the, the ideology of the religion and need to open that up to the lay people and then need to, <laughs> and then need to see you know, maybe we visit with people from different, I'll tell you right now, uh, the, the Muslims do that. That's part of the Muslim community is going, you know, there's language barriers, of course, between people from different countries, but they regularly attend services with each other and, and, and things like that. You, you can go to a masjid any time and go in there and see that there are people from different ethnic and, ethnic, uh, and, and national, uh, uh, whatever kind of, you know, boundaries that you, you could think of in there. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting because America prides itself on being so Christian, and most of us have never read the entire Bible, mm. you know? And we're not, like, we're worried about attending services with other Christians, you know, those of us who identify so. And it's like, well, what do you think they're doing on Sunday? Do you think that what they're doing is that much different from what you're doing? <laughs> you think because you're not in, you know, I mean, like, so, you know, avail yourself of the opportunity to connect with those people who are of this same faith that you believe and claim that you that you hold. Let me let me throw this back to Chuck. Then. So, Chuck, the, the, the follow up question that I issued a bit ago, in your opinion, how is how is the faith based community responded to these type of issues? How are they responding now, in your opinion? And if you want to do like Adrian and give a lead in, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Well, I mean, historically, it's pretty clear that um, we created a kind of civil religion in this country that was uh, um, uh, supportive of um, uh, the white community and not so much the black community. There was even discussion along the way uh, about whether or not um, we should proselytize amongst the slaves because if they became Christians, then they were people. And uh, so then we'd have to treat them like people. So um, it's pretty clear to me that, that from the start, we've had a religion that was by and for white people in this country. Uh, and we continue to have that. 87% or, or a number very close to that, I can't remember, it's in the 80s. Uh, of white evangelical Christians voted for Donald Trump, who was clearly, even in 2016, clearly a racist. Uh, and so what does that say to us uh, about the church today? The church is not just complicit in its silence. Uh, those of us who are moderate or liberal Christians uh, who are um, supportive of um, changes in, in uh, America in, in, uh, in terms of embracing people of diversity, in terms of developing laws and, and uh, uh, new attitudes towards our black brothers and sisters. Even we are, are complicit because of our silence. In some ways, silence is violence. It's a way of supporting the structure that already exists, uh, which is a violent structure against people of color. Um, so the church has created an environment in this country that is, um, a, that is clearly racist and supports white supremacy. Um, and, and, and those terms are so packed, so, uh, uh, so incendiary. I'm not a white supremacist, but mm -hmm. <laughs> I've been part of a, a system that has made whites supreme. I want to throw this, this follow-up question at you real quick, Chuck, and, and I know it's a loaded question. 
before we go back and, and try to move the segment towards the finish line, because many of the people that are listening to us right now that are Christians that have voted for the current president, they will use as justification his stance on pro-life. This whole situation with um, the Supreme Court comes down to that issue primarily. And so from your vantage point, you have a Christian saying to you, you know what, Chuck, he may be this kind of person, but he's pro-life, and at the end of the day, who he is as a person shouldn't matter to me as much as a Christian, as long as he enacts laws that are in harmony with my fiscal opinions and with my, my spiritual sensibilities on this particular topic. What do you say to that person? Because you know that's going to be the number one thing you hear when you talk to Christians who vote that direction. Yeah, I don't know what I say to those people. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's such... Uh, um, the, the issue of abortion is... Um, uh, profound, um, profoundly personal for many people. Uh, and, and there's a whole history to how that issue became the issue that it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one of, one of the reasons why. Um, so here we are, um, we're, we're doing a, a, a broadcast, um, a television program, uh, and um, we're trying to answer difficult questions in a few short minutes. And um, we're trying to answer questions that have tremendous complexity to mm -hmm. them. Uh, I have said, I, I'm pro-choice, but I have said to uh, folks who are pro-choice like myself, if you put yourself in the shoes of those who are um, pro-life, you, you can't understand, you can't allow, you can't criticize them because they're just simply being consistent. They believe that at conception, that, um, th that, that, uh, um, set of cells, the way I would look at it, is an actual human life. And therefore, ending that life is the taking of a life. And when you get that, when you're operating out of that mentality, they're being perfectly consistent. Um, it's not a way of protecting themselves. It's a way of, um, uh, of, of living out a faith that protects others. I would challenge them on so many other things that, that we don't do uh, that are promoting um, life and love, uh, um, that the whole agenda uh, on the right um, not only neglects to talk about uh, things like the things that we've already been talking about today, things like how we take care of, uh, of uh, children in this country, how do we address poverty uh, in this country. Um, I would challenge them to think about the bigger picture of what pro-life really means. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's hard to argue with them about abortion. Absolutely. Not arguing for or against. Let me be clear about that on the show. Not arguing for or against. I would never step into that rabbit trail. But, and I know that one of the things that's important to you as well, Chuck, because I know the guests submitted several things that, that they deemed important that we wanted to discuss today. And one of those things for Chuck was climate change. And just on the front, end, I wanted to just tell you on there, we'll touch on that next time because that's one of those topics too that just deserves time. Yeah. And, you know, we've allowed this thing, I've allowed this thing to kind of go over um, on police reform, equity, and inclusion. I'll say this, I'll go back to Adrian for a minute. Adrian, there's so much going on right now. And, and you know, we touched on the, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG. But again, that's a whole other show that I plan on doing at some point. When you look at everything going on right now, we'll go around the panel before we close, which is soon. What do you want to encourage people as they look at the 
uh, social and political landscape right now, and as we are a month removed from a very pivotal election? Well, Marcus, I think I think the best thing that we can encourage people to do is that they still have a voice in our society. Your voice is your vote. Um, and there are crucial elections up and down the ballot going on this year. Now, I'm not going to I'm not in the business of going on uh, a program like this and in endorsing any one person. What I will say is to use your vote, to pay attention to the things that are happening in our society, the way that people are talking, the way that they're carrying themselves. And determine for yourself if that's the type of person you want to align yourself with. But you still have a voice. You still have a vote. But you also have your two feet. You have your two hands. You have your mind. You have your mouth. You have your keyboard on your Facebook. You can encourage positive change in all the time in years that aren't election years. It doesn't have to be, you know, 50 days out to election, 40 days out to election for you to start speaking up on behalf of, of people who are of a different color than you, a different religion than you, a different sexual orientation than you. Our society has been blown open this year and the, and the tide of change is coming to this world. It's happening every single day in the hearts and minds of people. And I think that's what Chuck touched on earlier. Mm. Abdul, same question. I will say our current crisis, um, and obviously this has the, the direct political ramification, but our, our current uh, cultural crisis in America relates to a deficiency um, you know, as much as people love to tout our culture, uh, deficiency in the educational system in the sense that we have lost an understanding of the difference between rhetoric and logic. Mm -hmm. And the second part of that would be to say the, just the lack of empathy. You know, you can wiki it, you can go whatever, get a dictionary and look at the difference between those two words and, and get yourself an understanding of what that is. There's a lot of, media is a very powerful tool, but the first thing is, is, is putting some uh, uh, wisdom where it belongs in your mind before you just parrot something that's just out there. And the second part of empathy, the whole point of religious instruction and spiritual life is to cultivate empathy. And I, I don't care, any, any lasting religion that's out there teaches that. And so we're at a point where there's a spiritual crisis and we're a very materialistic society. So it, it not only matters how, who the president is and their orientation towards spiritual matters, besides what their political points may be, but it's important that it's important to you as an American citizen. Because once you lost that, you, you don't have civilization anymore. You might have technology, but it, technology can be technology and still be applied in barbaric ways. And so I just want to leave you with that. I, I have hope for us still, but we need to make a distinction between rhetoric and logic, and we need to be committed to empathy. Because without, without those two things, there's very little holding society together. And the, the, the irrationality of it is destructive to everyone. You, you might think you're winning this five minutes, but eventually, and certainly there's a downside in that, and eventually you could experience the downside uh, very quickly in ways that you don't anticipate. Yeah. Chuck, same question. Uh, I, I think I really agree with Abdullah that this is a spiritual crisis as much as anything, uh, that there's something fundamental in us that has to change, that we have to understand ourselves to be in this thing together. There's a... Uh, when, when the uh, shooting took place uh, at the uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh, uh, there was a, uh, 
uh, a unity worship service held here at, at uh, Anchi Hesed. And uh, I got a chance to speak for a couple of minutes there. And one of the things that I talked about was this photograph that I'd seen. Um, and it was a meme, basically, at, at, at the point at which I saw it. But um, there were three children sitting in a sandbox, um, three different colors, three different hairs, three different ways of dressing. Uh, and the kids are playing there together. And the, the, uh, the line at the bottom of the meme said, uh, my race is human and my religion is love. And that's the change that I think has to take place in us. We have to stop identifying ourselves primarily as uh, black or white or brown, primarily as Christian or Muslim or Jew, and understand that God created us all. So even if you're operating out of a, a, out of a religious um, uh, point of view, a worldview, you have to understand that. It's why Jesus can say that we should love not only our neighbors but our enemies. Uh, because we are all made by God and we are all children of God. If you say you love God and love not your neighbor, you lie, says First John. So for us, for me, that's the heart of the matter, helping people to understand that we're all in this together and that, and, and that we've kicked this particular can down the road for so long in the same way that we've kicked the can of climate change down the road for so long that we're now in dramatic crises. But the upside is that crisis often leads to change. Um, and hopefully we can manage this change without destroying one another. Uh, but for me, it's about that one little phrase, um, my race is human and my religion is love. Mm -hmm. Chuck, thank you so much for that. Chuck Camarada, thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, Abdullah Washington, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And Adrian Ewing, thank you for joining us via Zoom. Your presence was certainly felt digitally or not. Um, I thank you for all of your commentary as well. Thank you all for tuning in uh, to Next on WQLN as well. We'd like to thank our guests for joining us. Thanking you for tuning in. A special thank you to our research ass assistant here at Next on WQLM, it's Tanya Teglo. She does an awful lot behind the scenes to make sure that information-wise we are ready for this show, and so I want to thank her. Be sure to listen every fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m. on 91.3. And uh, again, go, go to our page on Next on WQLM on Facebook and 814NEXT on Twitter. Lend your voice to the dialogue. The public's voice and the voice of everyday people has always been uh, the very reason why these conversations have been robust. I'm Marcus Atkinson for WQLN. I say so long and we will see you next time.